Um, If you would, please open to Daniel chapter 8. As you do make your way there, I want to recall for us um, the section of Daniel that we are in uh, here from chapter 7 on is recording prophetic visions. If you remember back, chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel are historical accounts. Daniel is a Jew. They've been captured by the Babylonians. The Jews are going to be in captivity for 70, 70 years. So chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Daniel speak about various events during those 70 years for the Jews. And then chapter 7 on start dealing with prophetic visions. And those prophetic visions happen, most of them, during that time of those events. And so Daniel is really divided into two halves. So we're in the second half. We finished chapter 7 last week. Uh, we, went th- we went through that first vision there. And so just as a reminder last week, at the end of Basically, in chapter 7, we focused on a vision where, the, where Daniel was given a vision of, of four beasts. And in particular, these different four beasts represented different kings and different kingdoms. And Daniel particularly wanted to focus on the last beast because it was different than all the others. And so that's what chapter 7 really focused on. And it shed light on that fourth beast, which represents that final king, that final kingdom, and that final ruler that comes out of a revived Roman Empire. And this man who we call the Antichrist is going to arise out of that final Roman Empire. We already see Europe kind of coming back together now. Very interesting. We don't know what's going to happen there. But out of the revived Roman Empire, there's going to rise a person, a world leader, who is going to be extremely powerful, and he is going to dominate the world. He's going to slaughter the saints who are on the world at that time. And his rule will only be stopped at the end of what is called the seven-year tribulation, a tribulation period. And at the end of that time, Jesus Christ will return and shut him down. And so the vision of chapter 7 really gives us an introduction, a big overview of, of, of who the Antichrist is. And it doesn't give us extreme amount of details. That's why last week I did jump over to Revelation 13 and other chapters to kind of fill in some of the details. But what we're going to find in, the, in, in Daniel's writings in the vision parts is that Daniel will give us, like to say, he'll talk about the Antichrist in general terms. And then what happens is he keeps rotating back as he goes to dreams. He'll fill in some more things about that's going to happen in the future. Well, his future And what will happen is he'll come back and he'll roll back and he'll explain a little bit more detail about the beast. And that's kind of what happened. In chapter 7, you got a general outline of of who the beast was. In chapter 8, we're going to kind of see a little bit more of who he is, uh, those details filled in as we look at two other characters in history. And so chapter 8 really builds on chapter 7. And so if you would, please follow along as I read Daniel's vision in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 8. And then we'll go from there, okay? Daniel 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first, after chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I saw, uh, sorry, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and... I was at the Ulai Canal, verse 3. 
And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw a ram charging, the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with this powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds. Verse 9, and out of one of them, out of one of those horns, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great, towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew great, even to the hosts of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them, and it became great, even as great as the prince of of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Verse 13, and then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgressions that make desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot, how long is all this going to go on? And he said to him, uh, verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And so in verse verse 14, uh, in the first 14 verses there of Daniel 8, we have a prophetic vision given to Daniel. And the rest of the chapter goes on to interpret that vision. When you get stuck, just keep reading, okay? And so I'm going to be going back and forth between the first section, which is the vision, and the last section, which is the interpretation. You're going to see me jumping back and forth when I start explaining stuff. And so just keep that in mind as we go. But, but what we see first in the very first verse as we look at this vision is that Daniel is, is, receives this vision in the third year of a guy named King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. And in his third year, Daniel receives this vision, two years after the first vision he had in chapter 7. And so you have to keep in mind for us that as Daniel is receiving these visions, these things have yet to happen to him. They're in the future, some hundreds, some thousands of years later. You have to keep that in mind. For us, a lot of this is going to be history. We're going to look back and go, oh, yeah, well, that happened. We know that. But for Daniel, these things had yet to come. And so Daniel, to Daniel, he was giving future unfulfilled prophecy. And so according to verse 2 in Daniel's vision, in his vision, he was in a place called Susa. Remember, he's, he's in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And so Susa is about 250 miles east, keep going east, into the nothingness. And that would have been the chief city of the Medo-Persian Empire, 250 miles east of Babylon. And, 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 he, uh, and basically, he receives this vision, at, and he gets 
transported there. And, and Daniel's vision was of two animals, two distinct animals. We read that, right? The first was a ram, the second was a goat. The ram is described in verses 3 and 4. It had two horns, one that was, they were both big horns, I guess, but basically uh, the second one grew up after the first, became bigger, uh, bigger than the first. And the ram basically did whatever it wanted. It trampled everything in its path. But then, it, then a goat comes on the scene. And the goat there in verses 5 to 7 is described. Normally a goat has two horns, but this just has one conspicuous corn, uh, horn coming out of the middle of there. It was a unigoat. And so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm copywriting that. Um, and it came flying against the ram with its, uh, and broke its two horns. And the goat did whatever it wanted. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we see something interesting. As powerful as this goat was, in the middle, right at the height of its power, we see that that horn, that great horn, is broken. Yes. It's broken. It's suddenly broken. And out of its place comes four horns, right? Four horns. And then out of one of those horns comes a conspicuous little horn, right? And so from verse 9 through 14, it now focuses on this little horn, okay? And so you've got a big horn and you've got a little horn. These are the major ones you want to focus on. And so out of those four horns here, the most significant ones being the big horn and then a little horn that comes from the four that came after the big one. So we'll come back to these as we go. And so after hearing all this, um, how many of you are like, what in the world is going on? Why did I come here this morning? And <clears throat> you are not alone. Daniel says in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. <laughs> You're not alone. Daniel sees this and he's just like, what in the world is going on? And so we pick up in verse 15. That's where we are this morning. And it says, and behold, there I stood, and there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so here in verse 16, we're introduced to the angel Gabriel, mentioned only four times in the scripture. This is one of them. This is the first time an angel is named by name, Gabriel. And Gabriel means warrior of God. It means, it means uh, mighty one of God, one of those. So the idea is he's something else. Gabriel's mentioned three other times in Scripture, as I mentioned. He's mentioned later in Daniel chapter 9, 21. He's also in the Gospel of Luke in 1, 19, speaking to John the Baptist's dad. And he's also, just a few uh, chapters, uh, verses later in Luke 1, 26, he speaks with Mary. And so, um, I don't want to get into a study of angels this morning, but Gabriel is a significant angel. He stands before God, and he is sent by God to deliver messages at strategic points within Israel's history, a lot, most of them dealing with the coming Messiah. And so here Daniel is face-to-face -face with this mighty angel. And so verse 17 says, And so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. This is standard operating procedure when, procedure when you see a mighty angel like Gabriel. You fall on your face. It just happens all over the scripture. 
And so what happens is, is he says, but he said to me, understand, O, ma- o son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And so he gives us something, a broad brush, in order to understand what we just read. It is about the time of the end. That is the lens through which we need to interpret this. This is about the end. Okay? And so our understanding of whatever interpretation we have, it needs to focus towards that end. And the interesting thing about prophecy is they often have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. That's important to know. So what, what Daniel's talking about here, and we will get into it, is that there was, a, was an immediate fulfillment, but in that fulfillment, it was actually looking forward to the real fulfillment later on, which is the end, okay? So what he's going to be pointing out here is going to foreshadow, it's going to look to, it's going to illustrate, it's going to fill in the details we need, need to know about what's coming in the end. That's what's going on here. And so, we must remember this when we look at this. Verse 18 says, And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the, uh, to the appointed time of the end. Again, it's going to be, he's going to let you know, and it's about the end. And so now in verse 20, we start getting the interpretation. Verse 20, and as for the ram, excuse me, that you saw, the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. When the Bible talks about horns, it's talking about power and authority. That's what it does. Because when you look at an animal, an animal attacks and it defends itself like a ram or a goat and stuff. You've seen them butt heads and do all that stuff. It attacks themselves with their horns. And so uh, the more uh, significant those are, the greater attack and a greater defense. And the idea is that these kings are represented by horns. That's a symbol of power and strength. Just like in Daniel 7, the beast with ten horns. Again, those were all kings, and so here, these two horns on this first ram were representative of two kings of Media and Persia. So Daniel's told about this, that what would happen in the future is that there would be two kings from Media and Persia. That's what he's saying. And it would be a big animal, and one side would be bigger than the other. One would have more power and more significance than the other. And now, you got to understand that at this time, or actually before, well, right around this time, yeah, during that 70-year period, Media was a formidable nation. They were a pretty big nation. Actually, they had helped Babylon conquer, conquer Assyria. So they were a very powerful place. But Persia was relatively insignificant. They hadn't really grown on the scene until a guy named Cyrus comes and takes over Persia, and then Persia becomes great. And it's interesting is that Persia became great and it actually conquered Media in 550 BC. I know this is really helping you in your daily life. But I just want you to know that just as was described here, there were two kings. One was greater than the other, but the the one that was greater came up last and that was Persia. And Persia eventually attacked Media, and they, that's what, how they became the Medo-Persian Empire. They came together at this place uh, at that time when Cyrus took, uh, attacked Media and took it over. And so the Medo-Persian Empire is 
is, is, is what we've seen in chapter 2, the arms and the chest of the image of gold in chapter 2. It is the beast in chapter 7 of the bear with one side bigger than the other with, uh, with a bunch of uh, meat in its mouth, right? And here we see it as a ram with a, a bigger horn on one side than the other, Persia having greater dominance under Cyrus. And if you look back at verse 4, you see that the Bible lays out in advance how Cyrus is actually going to go conquer and gain control before it happens. Verse 4, you see Cyrus's plan of dominion is laid out, <clears throat> that the ram went west and then north and then south, and that's exactly what happened. Cyrus went, Cyrus went west, taking Syria and Asia Minor and Babylon, then north, he took Armenia and those regions around the Caspian Sea, and then he went south and took Egypt and Ethiopia. He already had the east because they were the kingdom of the east. It's amazing that as history lays out, it's just following what all, was already written. And if you walk away with anything from today, know that you can trust in the word of God. How is God who is outside time going to show you he's God besides coming down here and doing what he did? He's going to write the word and he's going to tell you what happens before it happens. So much so that as when it happens, men don't like that, and, they, they, and then you get your professors that tell you, no, it was written after the fact. No, it wasn't. It's amazing, and there's, there's history to prove that. There's a lot there, and I'm not getting into that right now. But basically, the ram just went everywhere and took out everything. That's why it said, like, the bear had much flesh in its mouth. It just devoured everything. And so there's this very powerful empire that goes and crushes everything. Cyrus conquered everything in a 10-year span, 549 to 539 B.C., but it wouldn't last. It wouldn't last. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> it says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And so the ram was Cyrus, basically in the Medo-Persian Empire, but the goat, back down to verse 21, a little bit more for interpretation. And the goat is the king of what? The king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the what? <clears throat> First king of Greece. And so Daniel is told that the next nation that would rise up after the Medo-Persian Empire would be what? The nation of, how many of you remember in world history that the nation to write up after the Medo-Persian Empire was what? Was Greece. And who is the great king? Who is the first king of Greece? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was born in 356 B.C. <clears throat> and so a couple hundred years after Daniel's prophecy. And by the way, uh, just to let you know, Cyrus himself, the, the Persian king, it reads about himself, his own prophecy in Scripture, and he gets blown away. I think out of Isaiah. I can't remember exactly where it is at the moment. And so this is amazing stuff. So Alexander the, the Great comes on the scene. Alexander was the son of Philip of Macedon, who was a conqueror, basically. I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of history here, giving you the really general parts. But Philip brought both Greece and Macedonia together. And so he had a united Greece. And after that, he had aspirations to fight the Medo-Persian Empire. So once he got Greece together, he was going to go, I'm going to go attack the major world empire. I'm going to go take them out. But he was killed, I believe he was murdered. 
And he died before he could do that, before he could aspire to that. And then it was his young son, Alexander, who took over his cause. And Alexander became king at 21 years old. 21 years old. And with two years, he got an army together and went and attacked the Medes and Persians. And he actually had a a less powerful army, like 35,000 troops, compared to the Persian army, which was just enormous. But that's exactly what we read here in Daniel 6, and by by the way, in verses 6 and 7 here in Daniel 8, that the goat ran at the ram. The goat ran at the ram with his powerful wrath and this fury. He broke the two horns of the ram, and he took those 35,000 troops, and he, with great fury, with white-hot fury, he he absolutely decimated the Persians. And historians say that it was as if they were fighting with a supernatural fury. Listen, Greece had such a red-hot hatred towards the Asian culture because Greeks really liked Greek, Greece, you know what I mean? They liked Greek culture. They wanted to dominate everything, push into everything, as we'll see here later. And so they just fought with this unreal hatred and strength and and. and they went and just decimated the Medo-Persian Empire. And that, that attack, after that, it didn't stop. Alexander never went home. He kept going. He went all the way to the border of India. He took everything from Europe to North Africa to the border of India. He just conquered everything, destroyed everyone and everything that didn't submit to him. He would burn entire cities to the ground if they, if they made him mad. And he did it with lightning speed. And this is why the Greece, Greece is pictured here as a goat that doesn't even touch the ground. In other words, it's just like a hovercraft. It's just going. Amazing military might that just destroys things with incredible speed. And that's why it's also pictured as a leopard with wings in chapter 7. And so this big horn, Alexander the Great, comes into the view. He's highly intelligent. He was, he was actually uh, educated by Aristotle. He, just, he was a military mastermind. He conquered everything that was in his path with lightning speed. And if we step back for a moment, we are seeing here in this big horn, it is a foreshadowing of the future power of Antichrist. Antichrist is going to be Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, all those people rolled into one. He's going to fight with military force like we haven't seen, and he's going to cut through things like butter. He's going to be supernaturally empowered by the enemy. He is going to make war. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he will be powerful. More powerful than Alexander the Great, he will be highly intelligent, highly influential. He will be a military mastermind, and he will be bent on conquest, and he will lay to waste nations and peoples, whoever comes in his way. Anything that gets in his path, he will decimate with lightning speed. So much so that Revelation 13.4 says of that final beast, the Antichrist, who the people of that time say, who is like the beast and who can fight against him? Who in the world can even do anything to keep up with this guy? And so here we see in this big horn, Alexander, the foreshadowing of the power of the Antichrist. But as for Alexander, he died. 
This conquest was cut short. On June, uh, June of 333 BC, uh, BC, I think that's the year, but at 33 years old, he was in the city of Babylon. He got in a drunken situation. We'll keep it PG right now. Um, but he ended up getting a fever, and he, and he died at 33 years old after conquering basically the whole known world. And that's why it says in verse 8 that that horn, that big horn, was broken at the height of the power, basically. What a shock. Just as Daniel's vision would said it would happen a few hundred years earlier. And what was the result of the big horn being broken? Verse 8 tells us that four other horns come in its place. Verse 22, skip down to the interpretation here. Verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. The Bible prophesied that Alexander's uh, great's kingdom would be divided into four different kingdoms. It would be divided into four different kingdoms. Not only here, but also in chapter 7, when you look at the leopard, it has four heads representing four different kingdoms that come from it. And that is exactly what happens. A lot of history reading that I was going over, but basically 22 years of generals fighting back and forth over the power of the land. Like a lot of, I mean, reality TV going on there. But basically at the end of that time, and you can read about it in history books, but the, the kingdom was finally divided. And guess how many kingdoms it got divided into? Four kingdoms under four generals. And so you had Cassander who took the west, that's Macedonia and Greece, and, and, and Antigonus or Lycomachus or whatever his name is. I don't know which one it is. I couldn't really figure it out. But um, they, they took the north, which is Thrace and Bithynia and Asia Minor. They, Seleucus, you want to keep that one in mind. He took the east, which is Babylonia and all the way beyond all the way to India. And then Ptolemy, uh, the south, which is Egypt and Arabia. And so that was divided up into four different kingdoms, just as the scripture said what would happen. So those four horns rose up. But verse 9 tells us that out of one of them came a little horn, and we want to focus on this guy, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the west, and towards the glorious land. So we're introduced to this little horn another leader that comes out from among the four Greek generals. And so the little horn described here is a Greek monarch, a Greek king. Now, some of you might be tripping out because you remember last week that we talked about a little horn, right? Like, what kind of, we're getting all mixed up with the little horns again. The little horn of chapter 7 is the Antichrist. He comes out of a revived Rome. This is not that little horn. This is a little horn that comes out of Greece that foreshadows that one, Okay? So don't get mixed up there. Uh, I was a little confused sometimes. We figure it out, right? But this little horn in chapter 8 comes from Greece. It's not the Antichrist. But we are going to see the, the guy reeks of Antichrist. And what we know of this little horn, this ruler that arises out of obscurity to a Greek monarch is named Antiochus. Antiochus, who was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid kingdom. The Seleucid kingdom was one of those four areas, and it took the eastern part, so Babylonian all the way to India, so the Babylonian roots right there. And Antiochus, this little horn, he ruled from 175 to 164. You're getting closer to the time of Christ. Remember, before Christ, you're moving towards zero. After Christ, like we are, we're moving away from zero, right, in our timeline, so you're moving closer this is 175, 164 years before Christ. He reigned the Seleucid, 
Seleucid section. And, and, and by the way, this reign took place during a 400-year period called the intertestamental period. Between your Old Testament and your New Testament, there's 400 years of biblical silence. All right? But God still worked. History's still going on. The Bible's quiet, but there's 400 years and what you find, and I won't get into it all right now, but basically, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. He brings the language, a common language to all the people, and then eventually the Romans come and bring the roads, and then Jesus comes and brings the gospel, and it gets spread. Interesting stuff. God's at work, even through history. But there's this 400-year gap, and this time is really interesting. This is Alexander the Great comes to power around the early 300s before Christ, and about 150 years later, Antiochus rises up. And an important note is that right before Antiochus takes power, because remember he had the eastern section, his father actually conquered, kind of took back the section where Israel was, Palestine. And so when Antiochus comes into power, he is technically the king of Israel, this guy. He came to power 175 B.C., and what is fascinating is that we have extra-biblical accounts. You can read books about what he did during that time. How many of you grew up Catholic? Okay, will you please? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and <laughs> in the middle of your Bible, you had a big old bunch of books, and they were historical books. They're not, they're not canon, they're not Scripture, but they're historical books. And two of, uh, uh, well, a, a few of those books, called the Book of Maccabees, they describe what happens during this period. And it's pretty interesting history. It's pretty amazing. So we have books like the book of Maccabees where we find a bunch of details about this guy, actually, Antiochus, and his rule. What we find about it, out about Antiochus is that he was an egomaniac. I know, it's shocking. Leaders are egomaniacs. It's pretty amazing. But he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. How many of you like, have that on your, like, Hi, my name is Matt God Manifest Dotson. You know, it's like people are like, oh my gosh, what just happened? That's not true. But the Jews kind of messed with that epiphanies. They called him some other thing that sounded like it. It basically means maniac. And that's what he was. He was an absolute maniac. And what we find in reading about Antiochus is that he was obsessed with the total replacement of Jewish culture with the Greek culture. That was his whole aim in life to totally take, remove anything to do with the worship of God and replace it with the worship of himself and the worship of all of his gods and paganism. He just wanted it absolutely taken out. And what we read in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, for example, is that the first thing that Antiochus does regarding Israel is he replaces the high priest with a guy named Jason. I mean, that should tell you right now uh, that something went wrong when your high priest, uh, in, you know, it's supposed to be a Jew, is named Jason. Jason is not a Jewish name, if anybody you guys know. <laughs> if he was Jewish, he took, on a, he took on a Greek name, which tells you where his allegiances were, right? And, and basically what happened is that Jason, uh, he, he bought the position from Antiochus. Listen, the center of Jewish, the Jewish world was the temple. That's where the Holy of Holies would, and the high priest was the highest position and all of that. This was sacred stuff. And so what happens, the very first thing is that guy is replaced. A good guy was replaced, and a bad guy got put in there who was very, um, 
let's just say he was very accommodating to Antiochus. And so the priesthood is contaminated. And then in 2 Maccabees chapter 4, we read that, uh, read that shortly after this, and you got to get this, that Antiochus then builds a sports complex, a sports arena right next to the Holy of Holies. So you've got the center of Jewish worship. And if you know anything about the Middle East, pretty, they're fully dressed, all these types of things. Those very modest, uh, you know, reserved people especially when it comes to their worship and the Holy of Holies, the Jewish people, is right there. Well, it's on a hill, and what they did is right below the hill, right there, in, right next to it, butted up against it, they built this sports complex. And does anybody know how the Greeks participated in their sports? Let's just say they, they lacked some clothing. That's exactly what it was, absolutely in their birth, birthday suits, right next to the center of Jewish worship. And so here, all these participants, I'm trying to keep, kind of edit what I wrote here, all these participants are running around in full view of the temple, doing all their games. And what we read is that many of the Jews, they just gave in and started participating in these games. They couldn't, they, they, the fallen nature fell over. And it got so bad, basically, that Jason and all the priests, they joined in, started doing discus and all this type of stuff. I know, you can't, like, make this stuff up. And so the undermining of the worship of the one true God was the aim of Antiochus. And this led to many Jews abandoning the law of Moses no longer holding to circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant for them, joining in pagan games that were dedicated to false worship, false gods, to Apollos and all these other gods. The games were dedicated to them as they happened. Sacrifices were made right there. And all that stuff was happening. What you had was God's people becoming like the world. It started with a Colosseum put up right next to the Holy of Holies, and people just started to follow. And all this was happening right in the shadow of the Holy of Holies. And this caused great strife for those who were devout Jews. And it led to something called the Maccabean Revolt, which is what we read about in these books. And so Antiochus introduces all this stuff of the people to undermine the worship of God, to sway them away, to move the culture away from worshiping God to the culture of the pagan world. This is what the Antichrist will do on a massive scale. But by the way, it wasn't enough to pop a Colosseum in there. It wasn't enough to affect the culture. What became a, an influential, highly influential, calculated group of Decisions there on his part actually turned into persecution. Verse 10 says, if we skip back up to verse 10, it says, It grew, that is the little horn, grew even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And so what we see is that Antiochus rises to power, and after he does those soft cultural attacks, even though they were quite pointed, then the physical attacks come. And that's 
demonstrated in the throwing down of the host, the throwing down of the stars. And if we look at Daniel 12, 3, I'm going to skip over some of this. But basically it means those who are obedient and faithful to God were thrown down. That's the idea. And that is what Antiochus did. He attacked those who were faithful to God. It began culturally. It ended up in flat-out persecution. And the persecution was horrible. He attacked their way of life. He attacked the worship of their God. He attacked their devotion to God. He did this with culture. He did it with policy. He did it with law. And eventually, he did it with force. And he attacked and destroyed and cast down and trampled anyone who worshiped the one true God. In 1 Maccabees, verse 44, it said that he made the people to follow strange laws. They worshiped Uh, The worship of Apollo and Zeus, it started in the stadium, but eventually that got pulled into the temple. The the, the statue of Apollo got pulled into the temple. They did pig sacrifices and all this stuff in the temple. And I'm not going to get into all the things that happened in the temple, but things got into, they changed the chambers into a brothel. Tons of other stuff that was just absolutely anti-Christ. And he enacted the death penalty for any Jew keeping the Sabbath, for any sac- anyone sacrificing to God, uh, anyone who circumcised their son, or any other Jewish se- ceremony, there was the death penalty. And Manry chose to die rather than to follow, to, to just follow his, to comply with what he was asking for. And guess what? They did. He took, I won't get into this right now, but the, the ones who did circumcise their sons, they had their babies basically tied to them, and they pushed them off the edge of a cliff after and just horrible stuff. Month after month, they would gather all the people who were guilty. They'd have a, a, a monthly gathering where they'd gather all the people who had violated these things. He'd gather together, and they would take them out in the streets, and they would sacrifice them. They would all kill them, and they would burn incense, and they would do all these things. You see, Alexander foreshadows the Antichrist power, but Antiochus, who we're going to wrap back around to in chapter 11, he foreshadows the Antichrist's evil persecution, his, his evil character. And verse 11 tells us that it became great, the, the little horn became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, meaning that he... Not that he was great as the prince of hosts. He esteemed himself to be as great as God, is what it was. His attack was on God himself. And we know that about the Antichrist, because the Antichrist will declare himself God as he goes into the Holy of Holies. That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. And we'll get roll back into that later. But the attack was, in against, was against God. And he also attacked, in, in verse 11 it says, he attacked God in this way, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, that is from God, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. The very place, the Holy of Holies, was attacked. And so later we read that Antiochus comes back to Israel, and, and he, um, remember he's ruling from, from afar and he comes back, but later he comes back and he's, he's, he has all these flowery words for Israel, and he says all these nice things, and then suddenly he just strikes and absolutely decimates the city. He tears down the city, burns everybody's homes, and he then basically he goes into the temple and he takes all the gold and the vessels and anything of value, and he massacres all the people, and he goes back to his homeland. So this guy is just flat out evil. The offerings 
became illegal. They stopped. And they were redirected towards him in the temple. And they were redirected towards the gods he served. And everything was redirected away from God towards himself. And verse 12 says, and a host will be given over to it, that is, to the small horn there, together with the regular burnt offerings because of the transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. The host means a group of people who claim to be of God but aren't. There will be false followers that will follow him, and there will be false worship, and all this type of stuff will follow him, and they'll take the very words of God and throw it to the ground, and that's what happened. They took the Torah, and they burned the Torah, and they did all these things. They burned the word of God. And so Antiochus is looking forward. The Antichrist is going to do this on a global scale, and what we're going to find out here is that he had like six years to do all this stuff. There was an appointed time, and he did a lot of bad stuff in a very short, in, in that six-year period, but, but the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to do far worse, and that's why his time is cut to three and a half years, basically where he's let loose. But verse 13 says, Then I heard a holy one speaking to another holy and said, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that makes desolate? We're almost to the end here. And the giving over to the sanctuary. And how long is this all this going to go on? Daniel wants to know how long is this going to happen. Remember, Daniel's looking forward. This did happen in history. It looks back. How long is this going to go on? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, the sanctuary and then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. This persecution went on for 2,300 days. That's a long time. Well, Daniel didn't know exactly when this would all start. He knew the end point. The end was that at the end of that time, the sanctuary would be restored into its proper place. And so that actually came to pass on December 25th, 165 B.C., when Judas Maccabeus led a revolt. This is the Maccabean Revolt. And he went and attacked. He came out of the hills, and he and his people attacked Antiochus's stronghold in the city of Jerusalem, and they took it back. And they cleansed the temple on December 25th. And this is why you have the celebration of Hanukkah. That's what they're looking to as the Jewish people. And if you count back 2,300 days from 165 B.C., you get seven, the year 171. We don't really know what happened that year, but we know whatever it was, it started this countdown. But what we do see in Antiochus is that foreshadowing of the evil character and the persecution of the Antichrist, which leads me to the final verses here, which I'm not going to talk about much. Just read mostly verses 23 through 26 in closing. But you see the little horn here in Daniel 8? Daniel had a near fulfillment in Antiochus, but then there's a far fulfillment. What Antiochus actually shows us is coming, and that's what's in verses 23 to 28. Let me just read verses 23 to 24 real quickly. And at the latter end of, the king, of their kingdom, at the end of the kingdoms of men, when the transgressions have reached their limit, when it's time for God to fix things, a king of bold face one who understands riddles or dark sayings shall arise, and his power shall be great, but not by his power, satanically empowered. And he shall, excuse me, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, and he and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
So in the end times, the Antichrist will rise up. He will be intimidating. He will be wise. He will be supernaturally empowered. If we are enthralled with the world leaders on the scene that we've seen, if we're so easily flocking to these people, what do you think is going to happen again when a supernaturally empowered leader pops up on the scene? The world is going to be deceived. You can only imagine what persecution will come at the hands of the Antichrist. It is going to be Alexander's military might on a global scale. It is going to be his persecution on a worldwide scale. And the world is getting ready for it right now. And like Antiochus, he will be successful for a time, three and a half years for the Antichrist, even though he'll be on the scene for seven. But really, given the reins to go for it for three and a half years, we read in Revelation. But verse 25 and by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own, in his own mind he shall become great. And without warning he shall destroy many, and he, shall, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, he's going to be cunning, and he's going to be deceitful man, and he will have a great ego like Antiochus. Antiochus called himself, obviously, Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. What do you, who is the actual God manifest? Jesus Christ, this one who's coming, is going to hold to the same. And the Antichrist will declare himself to be God in the Holy of Holies, which will be rebuilt, and he will demand that all worship him under the penalty of death. Like Antiochus, the Antichrist will speak words of peace, but will suddenly destroy many. We read in Revelation, when they say peace and safety, sudden destruction comes. Like Antiochus, he will seek to make war with God. At God's, at the end of Revelation, Jesus is returning. The sign is the sky. They gather all the nations to fight against Christ when he returns, but God destroys him with the word of his mouth. But he will be broken by what? No human hand. God will take him out. Antiochus actually died of intestinal type of stuff, but right here, the Lord is going to take him out and when, when the Lord comes back. And so, it, so in Alexander, we see the power that's going to come, the military might. And Antiochus, we see the evil character and the persecution of righteousness. Verse 26, 27, I'm just going to read it. The vision of the evenings and the morning that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. What I've told you is true, the angel says, but seal it up because it's coming, but not right now. You don't need to worry about it, Daniel. This is for a later generation, but keep it because it's important. They need to know. There's going to be false Christs that come into the world. There's going to be charismatic leaders that are going to rise up through the history. They're going to do these kinds of things. They're all under the spirit of Antichrist, but it's eventually leading to one. Verse 27, and I, I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for some days. No kidding. And then I rose and I went about the king's business. Remember, he was raised up in the kingdom there to be an ambassador. He rose up and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Wow. I know that was a lot. That was like a fire hose. It was for me, too. Um, the church, you know, these things have happened throughout the ages, and it's all leading towards the end. And what I... I'm so excited about 
is that the more this world shakes, the more this world gets all messed up, the sooner the Lord is going to come make things right. Amen? All right, we've got a hope, an unshakable hope, an unmovable hope. You know, Peter talks about and Paul talks about we've got rewards. Rewards that never spoil, they never fade, they never decay. Moss don't get them, rust doesn't come in, people can't steal it. A reward for us in heaven, an inheritance, unshakable. And the Lord Jesus simply calls us to trust him and obey him today, to walk today for the Lord Jesus. And what's so cool is that as we follow him, as we just simply love and obey him today, as he lays out the things for we're to do, right with the people that are right around us right now. As we walk in that obedience, we stay in His fellowship, we enjoy the comfort of the Holy Spirit, even in the hardest of times. And hard times have come and hard times will come. But it's all leading to the day where the light and momentary affliction turns into an eternal weight of glory. And I love that verse, that whatever affliction we go through for the Lord on this earth, and I'm fully expecting we get taken out of here before the Antichrist comes. I'm praying for that. But if persecution does come, and these things happen, we've gone through world wars, all these things, you know, we all will suffer. But as we go through these things, keep in mind, light and momentary affliction light and momentary affliction. In other words, how bad and how hard and how difficult it is now for the Lord. The flip side is that is going to be seen as light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. <laughs> God's glory, when we are face to face with our Lord, it's going to just crush us in the best of ways. You know, Joseph, just in closing, Joseph, in, in my second closing, Joseph, <laughs> he got persecuted pretty hardcore. He was in a pit. He was a slave. and nothing, He didn't do anything wrong, right? You know what he named his kids? I don't even remember what he named his kids, but Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And he names them, and their names basically mean that the good is so good, I forgot what the bad is like. That's the translation. And he went through a lot. But that's the idea, church, that the good is so good that we're going to forget what the bad is like, the eternal weight of glory. So when we're reading all this, keep the perspective. The Lord wants us to know what's coming. He wants us to be ready for suffering. He wants us to know that Alexander's coming. He wants us to know that Antiochus' epiphanies are coming. Don't expect him to like you or to get along with him. And don't go playing in their sports complex. <laughs> Suffer for the Lord. Be His in this time. It's worth it, church. Amen? Amen. And love one another <laughs> deeply from the heart. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Even though these verses are so weighty and seems complex, Lord, there's a simple truth to them. That this world is just broken and it's going to manifest in an ultimate broken leader that just hates you. And it's going to represent all that we are as sinful. And Lord, we just don't want to be a part of this kingdom in that way. 
We want to be a part of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your son. So, Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood of Christ that came into this world and redeemed those who were enemies of you. And you brought us to the grace and the knowledge of your son. You died. You rose again. Died for the penalty that we deserved. And you rose again to give us new life. Not then, but starting now. So we praise you for that, Lord. Let us walk like it. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.